Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 57. In today's episode, we continue coverage of the chaotic collection of events that occurred at Parkland Hospital in the minutes just before and just after the president's death. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 57. was the Dallas County Medical Examiner, and his office was located right in Parkland Memorial Hospital across the corridor from Trauma Room 1. Rose was in his office that day, and it took only moments for him to get the news that the president was dead. This was his case now. He walked across the corridor to the trauma room occupied by Jacqueline Kennedy and Father Huber. Father Huber had just given the last rites. There, Rose was met by Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman and Kennedy's personal physician, Admiral George Berkeley. The two of them would tell Rose that there was no time for an autopsy because Mrs. Kennedy would not leave Dallas without her husband's body, which was to be delivered promptly to the airport. Rose objected, insisting that Texas law required him to perform a post-mortem examination prior to the removal of the body. Kellerman and the rest of the Kennedy crew had their marching orders. The Kennedy men ignored Rose. They were taking the body with them, and the process to get JFK's body into the bronze casket continued. But Rose wasn't finished. He gathered up Theron Ward, who was a justice of the peace there in Dallas and was there at the hospital. Rose thought that inserting an official of the court would help make his point. But Ward simply was not forceful when it came time to stopping federal officials from seizing the body of the President of the United States. Ultimately, Ward proved to be no help to Rose. As the casket was rolled out on a gurney into the hallway at Parkland, a heated exchange ensued as Rose attempted to block its passage. This 800-pound bronze casket that the president was now lying in was being shoved back and forth as the forces on both sides of the issue began to inject physical force to achieve their objective. There are varying accounts on just what happened during the argument, but tempers were flaring and the language being used by both sides was escalating rapidly. Soon the air was filled with expletive deletives as the verbal exchange was the first volley in the escalation. Rose, who was initially backed by police on the scene, had made his mind up that he was not going to budge. And Rose was reported to have stood in a hospital doorway, backed by a policeman, in an attempt to prevent the removal of the coffin. Various accounts have Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman pulling his jacket back and revealing his revolver to Rose and the others attempting to block the exit. 
Still others have Kellerman going as far as pulling his weapon out and brandishing it. According to an account of it in Robert Caro's The Years of Lyndon Johnson, The Passage of Power, the president's aides had literally shoved Rose and the policeman aside to get out of the building. Rose's account of it some years later, in an interview with Journal of the American Medical Association, Rose made it sound less physically confrontational. Rose stated that he stepped aside, feeling that it was unwise to exacerbate the tension. In that 1992 JAMA interview, Rose said that in the corridor confrontation, Kellerman used three tactics. His status as a Secret Service agent, an appeal for sympathy for Mrs. Kennedy, and intimidating body language. Whenever the true story is, whether he stepped aside or he was pushed out of the way, whether Kellerman actually pulled his gun or not, the fact is that federal agents finally took control and forced their way out of the building and forever avoided a medical autopsy by Earl Rose, probably breaking Texas law in the process. Dr. Charles Baxter, who was the doctor in charge of the emergency medicine program at Parkland, had already given his approval for the feds to take the president's body. Whether Dr. Baxter had any sort of legal authority at that moment is debatable, but he was one more physician who weighed in on the topic. Years later, Kemp Clark would weigh in similarly, saying that had the disagreement gone on longer, other Parkland doctors would have intervened in favor of the federal agents. These doctors knew that the situation was virtually unprecedented, at least in their lifetime. Some saw Earl Rose's attempt as a grandstand, the sad act of a petty bureaucrat, one who is going to follow every bureaucratic rule, even in the wake of a national tragedy. Others saw Earl Rose in a more objective light, that he was only doing his job, and the true answer was, well, as he said, to remove the body of the president and fly it back to Washington before the chain of custody was maintained and an autopsy performed in the state would be a clear violation of Texas state law. A violation that, by the way, no one was ever charged with. No one would dare touch that one. Speculation here runs rampant. Would Rose have done an adequate job on the autopsy had the body been forbidden to be taken out of Dallas? Well, Rose was no slouch. He was 37 years old in 1963, and he had been on the job in Dallas for about five months at the time of the assassination. Let's take a minute to understand a bit about Earl Rose. Rose was born in 1926 in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. In the Second World War, he served on a U.S. Navy submarine in the Pacific Theater. He was one of those men of the greatest generation with impressive life credentials that were brought about by the events of World War II. Rose went on to study medicine for two years at the University of South Dakota and then earned his M.D. from the University of Nebraska in 1953. In the mid-1950s, he interned in Denver, Colorado, worked in a private practice in Lemon, South Dakota, and then he completed specialty training with residencies at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, studying surgical pathology, and then another one at DePaul Hospital in St. Louis, where he focused on clinical pathology. 
Rose then subspecialized with a fellowship in forensic pathology at the Medical College of Virginia. Besides his impressive clinical credentials, what really positioned him for the job in Dallas was that he had worked as a forensic pathologist in Virginia, where he had held the title of Deputy Chief Examiner for the Tidewater Region of Virginia. In June 1963, just a few months before the assassination, Rose moved to Dallas, where he became medical examiner for the city and the county of Dallas. According to the New York Times, he was hired by the county to establish a scientifically valid medical examiner's system to replace its existing system of elected lay coroners. Why, that's interesting, isn't it? The concept of elected coroners. Okay, back from that little wander. Rose, while working as a medical examiner in Dallas, studied and received a law degree from Southern Methodist University, or SMU as it's known in the South. Earl Rose was the real deal, but his style didn't go over well with everyone. As I said, some thought he was a grandstander, and some never forgave him for his actions that day in Dallas. In the five years following the assassination, he would receive death threats for the position he took that day in the hallway. Finally, the criticism seemed to be too much, and he headed away from Dallas, settling back in Iowa. In later years, Rose would say and write certain things when reflecting on his time as a coroner. And about his fleeting moment of fame during the Kennedy assassination, Rose would say this, I remain convinced that the laws should not be suspended for the rich and powerful, for in the final analysis, the laws serve to protect them. So true, Dr. Rose. So true. After the president's entourage forced their way out of Parkland with the president's body, it would take only a moment to load it into O'Neill's white Cadillac hearse. Along with a police motorcycle escort, three cars began pulling out of Parkland's service road. O'Neill's hearse, a car full of Secret Service agents and JFK's aides, and the last car, which carried O'Neill and two of his employees. The funeral director sensed something serious was amiss when he observed his hearse turn left in the direction of the airport rather than right in the direction of his own mortuary. Agents in the second vehicle radioed their counterparts at Love Field, instructing them to permit the first two cars only beyond the airport fence near Air Force One. Under no circumstances would O'Neill and his employees or any other vehicle be allowed to enter the area near the presidential jet. They traversed the ride back to Love Field quickly. Sure enough, agents let the first two cars pass through a fence close to Air Force One and within view of the aircraft, but halted O'Neill's sedan. The undertaker was furious. The martyred president was inside his casket and his coach, both supposedly bound for his funeral home. The agents ignored his protests, leaving Dallas police officers to assure the beleaguered businessman that the hearse would be returned to him.
inside Parkland near a ground floor elevator lobby, Parkland Hospital senior engineer Mr. Daryl C. Tomlinson was moving some wheeled stretchers when he bumped a stretcher against the wall and a bullet rolled out. He called for help and was joined by Mr. O.P. Wright, Parkland's personnel director. After examining the bullet together, Mr. Wright passed it along to one of the U.S. Secret Service agents who were now prowling the hospital, Special Agent Richard Johnson. This bullet that was recovered was peculiar from one standpoint. It had survived the journey through both Kennedy's body and then Conley's body quite well. But that was not a well-known fact at that moment of time. After all the apparent damage that was finally to be attributed to it, the bullet itself was virtually unscathed. The shell's near-pristine appearance has prompted some to call it the magic bullet. Yes, there was some damage to the bullet, but not the kind that one would intuitively believe would have been present after causing seven of the eight wounds in President Kennedy and Governor Conley and shattering the governor's rib and wrist. See a picture of the bullet at our website, www.podcastjfk.com, under the blog for episode 57. Even though finding the bullet in the way it was found, all by its lonesome on a stretcher, was one more scene out of a James Bond movie, even though it was just that, skepticism around the chain of evidence was to become a matter of concern for the Warren Commission. Skepticism that touched upon much of the forensics supporting the case against Oswald. And so, in 1964, the FBI prepared a memo, which eventually became Commission Exhibit Number 2011, and whose principal function was to document the chain of evidence of the magic bullet. Commission Exhibit 2011 would lay it out. First, Agent Johnson would carry the bullet back to Washington, D.C., and hand it to James Rowley, the chief of the Secret Service. Rowley would, in turn, give the bullet to FBI agent Elmer Lee Todd, who carried it to agent Robert Frazier in the FBI's crime lab. It would eventually become the famous Warren Commission Exhibit Number 399 and one of the linchpins and the main actor in the single bullet theory. You've heard a great deal already in earlier episodes about the magic bullet. It gets even more bizarre when, in 1967, author and researcher Josiah Thompson interviewed O.P. Wright. And in that interview, Wright denied that he had confirmed what the bullet looked like back in 1964. In fact, Wright's position in 1967, at the time of the interview, was that the bullet he saw was pointed. Quite different than the picture of the magic bullet that we have now come to know and love. We'll cover more about this bullet in a later forensics episode. Seth Cantor was a reporter for the Fort Worth Press, which was a Scripps Howard paper. By 1963, Cantor had been in the newspaper business for about 18 years. He was a veteran reporter. His home base was Washington, but he had been assigned the responsibility of covering the president's visit to Dallas 
And on that day, he was riding in the press pool car, a few cars behind the president. As the chaos began in Dealey Plaza, the press car also sped to Parkland, and so he was among the first group of reporters to arrive at the hospital. Cantor went on to write stories on November 22nd and on the 23rd, and they were widely used in virtually every paper in the Scripps Howard chain. He would later write several books on the assassination. As they arrived at Parkland and exited from the car, Cantor began to talk to other individuals, including Senator Yarborough, as they waited outside of the emergency room. For a time, Cantor had been standing outside the emergency room entrance, and like reporters did in those days, he liked to scribble notes in a notebook. And some of the notes he scribbled that day would later be important as he testified to the Warren Commission. At that moment, nobody wanted to accept the idea that the president might be dead. But the tension and the anxiety were high in anticipation of the unknown. Cantor was to eventually make his way inside of the hospital, convincing one man in the security detail to let him in the building. And as he emerged inside, shortly he would see the priest in the hallway and he would look straight at Lady Bird Johnson's face. Before that moment, he had no strong premonition that the president might be dead. But the sight of the priest and the look on Lady Bird Johnson's face was enough to tell the story. When the tragedy began to unfold, Cantor made a decision that the story was going to be so widespread that it made sense for him to call his Washington bureau so that they could then disseminate the breaking story from there and get it into the hands of all of the Scripps newspapers as quickly as possible. So, he would then work to try to find a phone and call his office back in Washington. Really, just to tell them what he knew at that point, and even then, at that moment, nothing was very clear. He did not know whether the president was dead or not. Cantor was following the time on his watch very closely because it was a matter of newspaper deadlines, especially for the Texas newspapers. That was part of the reason for calling Washington, because Cantor felt that there may not have been time to call the Texas papers individually. Watching the time and noting it consciously as events were occurring would also be important for other reasons that you'll hear about in just a minute. In the meantime, what would happen next would contribute one more important piece to the conspiracy puzzle that was emerging. The puzzle to this day that we are still working to solve. Cantor was headed down a hallway, and as he passed a stairway, he would walk right past Jack Ruby. In the focus that overtook him right at that moment, he had missed seeing Jack. But he was right there. Cantor had previously lived in Dallas from September 1960 until May 1962, and in that time frame, he had met Jack Ruby. After he joined the paper in Dallas, he became a feature writer for the paper, and in that time frame, Ruby had provided content for as many as half a dozen feature stories and background on characters that Cantor was writing about. As Cantor walked past Ruby, he was stopped momentarily by a tug on the back of his jacket. Cantor turned and saw Jack Ruby standing there. Ruby had his hand extended, and Cantor remembered very well his first thought, which was, well... There is Jack Ruby. Ruby had a knack for, and was known for, showing up at these kinds of moments. 
Cantor had his mind on many things at that moment, and his first reaction was just to walk away, just to turn and continue on his way. But Ruby did have his hand out, and so Cantor took his hand and shook hands with him. Ruby had called Cantor by name, and Cantor had said hello to him. Jack answered back by saying, Isn't this a terrible thing? Or words to that effect. Cantor would answer, Yes. But Cantor also knew it was no time for small talk, and he was most anxious to continue up onto the stairway because he was standing with anticipation, as one does when you're getting ready to ascend up a stairway. Cantor looked at Ruby, and he sensed quite a look of consternation on Ruby's face. He looked emotional, which also seemed fitting enough for Jack Ruby. But then, Ruby asked Cantor a curious question. Ruby said, should I close my places for the next three nights? Do you think? Cantor answered, yes, and that he thought it would be a good idea. By this time, Cantor politely excused himself, and Ruby said he understood. That was it. But it was more than just bumping into an old friend or acquaintance. Now there was evidence that Jack Ruby was at Parkland during the time the president was there. Was it simply the groupie in Ruby that showed up everywhere? Everywhere that there might be an unusual event? Or was there more to it? To this day, there are questions as to how the magic bullet made its way to Parkland. With Ruby now being identified as being on the scene, the conspiracy possibilities seem to multiply. Nobody has ever linked him to the placing of that bullet on or near that stretcher, but the accusations and theories didn't take long to develop after these facts became known. Warren Commission Attorney Bert Griffin took Cantor's testimony, and Griffin asked him if there was any question in his own mind on whether he saw Ruby at Parkland that day. Cantor would respond that if it was a matter of just seeing him, Cantor would have long ago been full of doubt. But Cantor did talk to the man, and Ruby had deliberately stopped Cantor, and they had conversation. Because of all of those things, Cantor would say to Griffin, I just can't have any doubt about that. In the end, the conclusion was clear. It was Ruby he saw, all right. Jack Ruby was a character. For identification purposes, that was a good thing. As Cantor would say, if you knew Jack Ruby, you'd certainly know him when you saw him. Later, Ruby would be interviewed about his presence at Parkland that day. Ruby denied being at Parkland Hospital at that time. But he was there, and Cantor saw him. And Cantor was more than a credible witness. There is no doubt about that. The Warren Commission would dismiss all of Cantor's testimony taken by Griffin. What would they say in the official written report? They would say that Cantor probably did not see Ruby at Parkland in the few minutes before or after 1.30 p.m., the only time it would have been possible for Cantor to have done so. Well, there you have it. Another twist of the truth. A twist of a truth into a non-truth by the Warren Commission. I'm just saying. There was a second individual at Parkland that day that also claimed to have seen Jack Ruby, and her name was Wilma May Tice. She was a 39-year-old housewife, and her husband worked part-time for American Airlines and the Dallas Police Department. 
She lived close to Parkland, and when she heard the president was brought there, she decided to go and see what was happening. Her children were at school, so she could quickly wander over to the hospital, but she needed to be back at the house no later than 3 o'clock to be there when the kids got home from school. Certainly, this little field trip was sparked by a curiosity and probably concern for the president, as it was for so many. As she stood outside of the hospital at Parkland, apparently she eavesdropped on a nearby conversation that just happened to be conducted by a man that later she would identify as Jack Ruby. Apparently, the conversation was notable enough and she was nosy enough to try and listen in, and when she did, she zeroed in on Ruby. She did not know Ruby before that day. She was later interviewed by Warren Commission Attorney Burt Griffin, and throughout the questioning, this woman was concerned that the discussion would get back to her husband, and, in fact, requested that she testify alone and not in the presence of her husband, even though the testimony would be a matter of public record within months. As she tells the story, her husband was dead set against her leaving the house during the day, and he would not have been happy to find out about the trip to Parkland. I assume he finally did. I wonder what happened. In addition, in the months after the assassination and around the time of Ruby's trial, she apparently carried on conversations with members of Ruby's family. These peculiarities in her testimony and questionable actions afterward make her a less credible witness than Cantor was regarding the identification of Ruby at Parkland. And, in the end, Bert Griffin was happy to see her go, I think, anyway, after the testimony was over. For Griffin, she was cover. She may truly have been a witness that was not credible. We don't really know. Certainly, there is a question about what stress might have been in the house as a result of her husband having been a policeman for the Dallas police. Could that have contributed to her hesitation? But for Griffin, nevertheless, for Griffin and the commission, they needed a less credible witness inserted into the lineup for this one. They did not need another complicating fact that might point to a broader conspiracy, and especially one that involved Ruby. Because, for the Warren Commission, the conclusion was already sealed. Ruby was not at Parkland that day. Even though it's pretty clear that he really was. That was their story, their narrative, and they were sticking to it. We had stuff going on like people were talking about, you know, it's a conspiracy to overthrow the government, you know, and we don't know what's waiting for us when we get outside. And, you know, there may be some more gunmen outside, maybe gunmen trying to get inside. Well, they opened the door for us to bring the casket out, and the people from the state or the city, whatever, anyway, they said, you're not taking this casket out. And the federal people said, we're leaving with the thing. And there's, there's a lot of cursing going on in this, you know. Everything. Miss Kennedy's standing behind the casket, and the priest is standing by her. And he's blessing it with holy water all this time. And there's a crucifix, a metal crucifix that they have on top of the casket, you know. Normally, you know, these things wouldn't even slide or anything, but they was, they was pulling this casket so violently, you know, that this crucifix was moving around, sliding on the casket, you know. And I was trying to hold it on there to keep it falling off. So we 
would pull it a little way and they'd pull it back. This went on, this totally went on, seemed like forever, but it lasted probably five or ten minutes. And then someone finally came up and said, you know, let the SOBs go. Thank you for listening to episode 57 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.